0: Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa.
1: This is for the rasa. This is the Reality Dysfunction. Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto back at you with another episode of the Reality Dysfunction. Today, I had the real pleasure of talking with Margot Cohen, Lupe Castillo, and Gage Stewart. Margo and Lupe are organizers of many decades who have taken on the U.S. immigration system over and over with surprising success. Their secret, and this is where beginning organizers would do well to take heed, is building community power through community mobilization. Cowan and I also share an important legacy as we were both organizers for the United Farm Workers, her in San Diego, and myself in Detroit. We talked about their ongoing campaign, Justice for All, which takes as one of its central tenets that the right to legal counsel should not depend on charity. It is a brilliant campaign that Castillo and Cowan are heading up through their grassroots fighting machine, Keep Tucson Together. One last thing before we really get into it, meeting another Chicanx academic who is involved in grassroots direct organizing was a treat and inspiring. These veteranas are on point. We're gonna about to get started. We have uh, Gage Stewart, Margot Cowan, and Lupe Castillo with us. And so I'm just going to kind of hand it off to them. Maybe Margo and Lupe could start by telling us a little bit about themselves.
2: This is Lupe, and basically um, somebody who is, uh, I guess, a veterana coming out of the Chicano movement of the 1960s, was very active in trying to establish Chicano studies at that time during the walkouts, the blowouts, as they were called that were carried out in Los Angeles and then in Tucson and so forth and became very active in that, the anti-war movement against the war in Vietnam and uh, from a Chicano Chicana perspective at that time. And basically based in Tucson, um, you know, going through the immigrant rights uh, movement social movement, also the sanctuary movement, also, again, from a perspective of um, uh, the Central Americans uh, working in the first detention centers that were established, uh, one primarily in El Centro, California, where the Salvadoreños and Guatemaltecos were incarcerated as they were crossing the border at that time, and then worked from there into continuing our work in um, immigrant rights to this day so my even though i was one of the first teachers of chicano studies that was uh, carried out at pima community college the first class that i taught there was in 1971 and the perspective was entirely as uh, as a chicana and used the first book that was that still I consider to this day the bible of Chicano studies, Uh, Rodolfo Acuñas occupied America, America, which was the first Chicano, Chicana studies that was that was written from that perspective. So I'm very much rooted in Tucson. I was born in Tucson. My family uh, is generational from the borderlands Sonora, Arizona. So we are indigenous to to this area. So that's a little bit about me. And of course, you knew about my arrest at the uh, the district one when we were fighting uh, that w- the renewed. You know, because many of the young people then thought, "Oh, this is we're doing this for the first time." Yeah, this was like the third time,
1: the yeah.
2: third uh, battle that was carried out for Chicano studies. That is still continuing. So um, my participation is in,
0: in resistance. And so here's Margo. First, let me say that we really appreciate uh, the chance to chat with you, and get to know you a little bit this afternoon. Uh, muy agradecidas. I have organized forever, I guess, I was very fortunate managed a strike Diego Gill strike in uh, southern San Diego County in the early '70s. I lived in Tijuana at the time, and uh, I was able to to really meet César and Dolores, work closely with them, and learn from them. And I always think that I did learn some incredible ways to organize, but more than anything, I really I really uh, learned. Act in community yeah. and the value of community and community values um, and it's carried me through through all of the various um, various campañas that I've done and also uh, in my professional life um, after that strike, I came back home to Tucson and um, managed a, a war on poverty office in my neighborhood. Uh, I live in, we, we live in a neighborhood called Barrio Hollywood in the west side of Tucson. And, um, and we, we began, there began, the Border Patrol began to do raids at the, after mass at the church here in the barrio and at the soccer games and that kind of thing. And myself and, and others that worked at the, at work at the, the centro uh, put together immigration counseling and, and began to process documents and that kind of thing. In 1976, our office was raided, and the four of us were indicted on a 52-count federal felony indictment. So we, we organized. That's what we do when we're under attack. The indictment was dismissed, and then we went on to put together a really comprehensive immigration defense project. We were the first community-based organization in the country that was authorized be what's called representatives and actually represent people in immigration court, not being lawyers. And then um, Salvadorians and, and Guatemaltecos began to come up through our desert and die in the desert. We wanted to do something to intervene. And we worked with faith-based leaders that had worked with with us before. And both of us are co-founders of the sanctuary movement, which ultimately, uh, move thousands of people into the interior and away from the border. We set up the first in-detention defense project in El Centro. At that time, there were like five detention detention centers in the country. We were able to, able to bond out thousands of people. And um, so that work was all was all really special. And uh, And then I decided to go to law school. And so I went off to D.C., when I got to D.C., when I graduated, I was a director of something called the Latin American Youth Center. And, uh, and all of a sudden, all the Central Americans started dying from AIDS. D.C. and, and New York were centers of, in the pandemic. And I came back to Tucson and nothing was happening. So I organized something called the People of Color United Against AIDS Campaign in um, all the different barrios, African American communities, the two Native American communities, Don and Pasco Yaqui. Always, always, all of these different issue campaigns around what I learned from Cesar and Dolores about how one organizes in community and how one acts in community. After that, I went to work for Don Autumn, was a general counsel out there for a year, and uh, I wrote something called the Don Autumn Citizenship Act, which was introduced in Congress. And unfortunately, didn't get out of committee because there are a, a significant number of federally recognized American Indians, Don autumn that are nation-state Mexicans. When they began to enforce policies um, along the border, these people were the first to be separated from their traditional lands. You know, then I went to work for the Public Defender in Tucson. I managed what's called a, a cremigration team there, created this team so that All of the non-citizens who are charged with crimes would be represented by um, public defenders who are duly trained in criminal law and immigration law with the idea that one tries to resolve the criminal issue in such a way that it won't have an adverse consequence on immigration status. And 10 years ago or so, we thought it was important to organize a community clinic. We call it Keep Tucson Together. During the Obama years, mostly what we did was put together packages to get cases, admin closed of people um, that were in removal proceedings in immigration court. We, we've done thousands of DACAs and naturalizations and that kind of stuff that really brings security to the community, gets people work permits and creates new voters. And then in this period, it's just a horrific period, we, we have represent hundreds of people that are in removal at the moment. Uh, people are in detention facilities. I call them petri dishes because they're they're so full of infection. So our clinic has, has changed to be really, really a fighting machine. And it became very clear to us, like in the spring of 2017, the right to counsel shouldn't depend on a charity. We have a lot of volunteers, both lay people and lawyers, great folks work in our clinic able to do all this work, but the bottom line is that, is that the right to counsel shouldn't be dependent on, on charity. So we began to talk to the Board of Supervisors and try to do it the political way. We were one vote short. It became clear to us last summer, really, last spring, that what's required is citizens to create legislation through the initiative process. You know, we believe that it's been so long since there's been any kind of relief, any kind of immigration reform, that everybody knows somebody who could be put in removal and could be torn away from their family, and that no one should stand alone in immigration proceedings just because they're poor and can't hire a lawyer. So we kicked off the campaign, and the campaign is to create, based on a public defender model, Uh, The Office of Immigration Defense as an office of county government, funded with taxpayer dollars to represent Pima County folk and people who are apprehended in Pima County. So Pima County is a border county. And so sometimes people cross and are apprehended in the desert. Those people also would be represented in removal. If they don't have the means to hire a lawyer so that's sort of sort of what i picked up along the way
3: cool hey so i'm my name is gage Stewart. i am currently um as of late working with the pima county justice for all campaign just as a general organizer to help oversee the operations of this campaign in any way that you know i can be helpful to just be assisting to Margot and, and Lupe. And as of late, you know, we've been really trying to figure out how to move forward with this campaign under COVID conditions. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that. But that's really been um, a big challenge and, and something that's been really hopeful and creative and also very frustrating for a lot of campaigns, including our own. I have a community organizing background, and I am very happy to be on this podcast.
1: All right. I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> this is going to yeah. be a fun conversation. Can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, Office of Immigration uh, Defense? I'm, I am fascinated. When I first heard this idea, and I heard you talking about it in a presentation that you did uh, through the Prescott College Social Justice. Uh, community organizing crisis as opportunity I, I just fascinated by it but also the, i think the thing that really i find the most interesting is the uh, possibility of replication uh, around the country
0: sure you know the the right to counsel in the criminal context hasn't always um, existed and it started in the in the early 30s when mostly people of color were charged with first-degree murder and didn't have a right to a lawyer and stood alone. And so it's interesting how these, these different contexts surrounding the issue of right to counsel parallel because, you know, volunteer lawyers started to step up and volunteer to represent people facing the death penalty. Cities and counties created defense projects to represent people facing the death penalty overwhelmingly people of color, and, but there still wasn't a right to counsel. And then uh, the Supreme Court uh, held the late 30s, I think, that in death penalty cases, there is a right to counsel, but there's still, and it should be at government expense if the person is, is unable to you know, e- pay even a sliding scale. But there still wasn't a right to counsel for everything else. And there are other crimes that could result in life imprisonment and that kind of thing. Penalties, heavy penalties short of death. And the same the same pattern repeated itself. And volunteer lawyers stepped up. And then cities and counties created small funds, and people facing more serious charges were uh, afforded a lawyer. And once again, the Supreme Court intervened and said for certain classes of crimes, the public entity is required to provide lawyers for indigent defendants at the public expense. And then it wasn't until the 60s that the Supreme Court spoke again and said, anybody who's facing one day of deprivation of liberty and is, is indigent and can't afford to hire counsel has a right to a publicly funded lawyer. And that was really the beginning of comprehensive criminal defense, public criminal defense. And so what we've seen, with the exception of New York, New York began right around the time of the war on poverty, when the legal aid societies were were first funded to do both civil and, and criminal work, began to create a very robust immigration court defense component. And then Congress began to reduce funds to the program, the legal services programs, principally because of the advocacy work done in California around farm worker rights. And then finally, uh, Congress defunded totally the Legal Services Corporation. That had the effect of eliminating legal services, both in a criminal context and a civil context for indigent people that were provided through the Legal uh, Services Corporation. Then what began to happen, well, in New York State, for example, they said, well, we're just going to fund the model that has previously been funded by the Congress. So actually, their right to counsel for indigent folks in removal has been continuous since the 60s. So they're the oldest project in the country. But let's say during the last 10 years, you begin to see pop up around the country, and particularly in this administration, publicly funded defense projects to represent indigent families who are put in deportation. Most of those models are not institutionalized. So what do I mean by that? I mean the city or the county either funds a nonprofit to do the work or they fund a city or county department, but only for one or two fiscal years, And it's sort of like a a special appropriation kind of thing. I don't know of another one that's, I don't know of one besides New York that has really institutionalized the right to counsel. And I should say that this year, with the strain caused by COVID on New York City and New York State, it was a big fight for the immigration piece of the New York Public Defenders To be refunded and and as I say it's been it's been funded for you know 50 years it was a huge fight and there was a lot of there were a lot of questions about whether or not it was going to be funded so the idea of an initiative um, although we did try to do it politically first the idea of an initiative is that citizen created legislation in a legal sense is of the highest priority and citizen-initiated and created legislation can only be undone by another initiative. So this initiative um, requires us to gather 58,000 valid signatures of Pima County registered voters. Where Our goal is, is more like 88,000 because we want to make sure that we, we get it on the ballot. But we know two things about that. One... It's highly unlikely, and I, I think I wouldn't be taking a chance to say it's impossible, for some other group to come up tomorrow and do this kind of an, an initiative to repeal uh, the creation of this office. So when we talk about institutionalizing the right to counsel, it really is institutionalized because of the great difficulty um, it would require to undo. So I think that's, that's important to note this model is very difficult to to, uh, execute, It's very, very difficult. I've always believed that Pima County, and particularly uh, this election cycle, the issue will not be, can we win? The issue will be our only challenge is, can we get enough signatures in this moment when we're not able to organize in a more public way?
1: Just so that I I think so that everyone's clear, and and I'm asking this question, just in case anybody's wondering, for myself also too, when you say citizen-initiated legislation, what you're talking about is like a ballot proposal, right?
0: An initiative, yes, voters. Okay,
1: Okay. all right, good. Yeah, I just wanted to be really clear about that. Okay.
0: I'm not really using citizen in the term of of an immigration term. Right. I'm using it as registered voters in Pima County in the democracy exercising the muscle in mass that, the, that we all have. I
2: think it's, inter- it's uh, important to point out
0: that initiative
2: um, movements are very rare. Very few states have this. Arizona was, uh, if I'm not wrong, was one of the first states when it became a state. One of the reasons it was not immediately brought in is because it insisted on having initiative possibilities, that is, law could be driven by community, you know, rather than going through a political process. So for us in this uh, particular initiative, as Margot pointed out, we begin within the political system, going to the board of supervisors. That failed. But what we knew and understood is that, and you as an organizer also understand this, is that you never initiate a change within the political system unless you have an underlying social movement to force that. So uh, moving from that political stance that we took of going to the Board of Supervisors uh, was just the opening stage of where we were going uh, if that failed, then we have the initiative and that that is coming out of grassroots social movement so that it isn't an isolated thing that we're doing just for the election, but that it creates the the underlying movement of um, Of citizen initiative, community initiative, everyone who resides in Pima Pima County, right, that become part of it, uh, whether they're here, uh, you know, undocumented or whether they're here as winter visitors, whatever their their place in Pima County, they become part of it, and a movement is initiated. We have to be very clear that it isn't just a political moment of achieving this, but what is behind it and the resistance to it as well.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of things about the history of Tucson that, I mean, both of you uh, really touched on in, in your opening comments when you were telling us about yourselves. I mean, you know, specifically to the point that you made, Sister, about it not being just a, a political move or that as, as an organizer, we don't just initiate things that we know that there's no backup to. And so that the the work, the real work, like the on the ground in the block work of immigration reform has been going on in Tucson for decades now. I mean, one of the things that I learned when I first got here is that Tucson is really the epicenter of the sanctuary movement that was going on in the, uh, 70s and the 80s. And I'm, I'm also, I was just kind of wondering, Margo, if that's, because you had mentioned that the Immigration Counseling Office that you were working in in 1976 was raided. And uh, I was just wondering if, you know, that was a, that was a part of the, the sanctuary movement, you know, and how these things have just kind of built out over the decades.
0: Well, you know, it's all connected. The The office was called El Concilio Manto, uh, Manzo is an uh, elementary school uh, here in the barrio. Uh, Enrique Manzo was one of the first Chicano uh, educators. And so it's it's the 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 formal name of this neighborhood is Manzo, pero todo lo dicen el Hollywood. Um, and and yeah, the work that we did at Manzo, there have been um, mutual defense organizations and clubes and societies and all of that entre comunidad just forever into some way before Arizona was a state. Yeah. You know? And and so the work that we do and have done, I mean, even the work that we've done for years and years is really it's just kind of like the last contribution on top of this rich, rich, rich piece of work that's just been done forever in community by community, you know? And so yeah, we did the, we, we began to fumble our way around immigration defense. The government really, really uh, launched us off into be full-time immigrant defenders when we were indicted because we, we had to check out what all this meant. You know, Lupe and I and others were the co-founders of the sanctuary movement. It was um, built on a community model. So all these pieces are linked. But they're only linked, they're only a little pieces in a chain that go way back to this rich history of, um, of auto-defense,
1: mm.
0: of community action around community that springs from community, you know?
2: I, I think that 1976, when the indictments came down on um, the workers at uh, El Concilio Manzo, Uh, was very important, and in fact, uh, Rodolfo Acuna has written about this, and uh, one of the supporters during this time was uh, Bert Corona, who is often not, I think, uh, mentioned enough in terms of having been so key in uh, establishing the social movement around the right of, in quotes, undocumented people uh, to organize into unions and to organize, which had always occurred, being that many of uh, people here went back and forth from time immemorial, yeah. you know? And so that it wasn't like, for those of us internally within this work, it was very clear to us. Like, for example, the sanctuary movement that emerged out of the work of Concilio Manzo. I always used to say there isn't a house in any barrio that hasn't been a sanctuary because there has always been part of our community coming through. So that every house in every single barrio across this country has been sanctuary, has provided sanctuary, is a sanctuary center, right? And all we were doing then is uh, bringing in to that uh, umbrella, the people from Central America, because many of them first came to El Concilio Manzo. I mean, we had a woman come in who had a bullet in her, and she had just been three days before she had been in El Salvador and got on a on a bus and ended up here in Tucson. So that kind of reality is what thrust us into going from from El Concilio Manzo. In 1976, and within that, also the use of the contras in the border to practice as people were coming across uh, the frontera. So all of that was interconnected, and, and that is a story that is yet to be told, you know? Yeah. So I think that how one came from the other is very essential because it comes way back. But it is like in the in, in the uh, people uh, the theyakki people were those people who were providing sanctuary and water as is their way of life, yeah, you know, so that's what we were learning from yeah, and within our own communities as well and and to just uh, to emphasize this uh, when When the sanctuary movement came, uh, I was called to somebody's house here in Menlo Park. And as I was talking to this woman, she said, well, we want to help somebody who's in detention, happens to be a nephew. And I said, well, he's from El Salvador. How is he a nephew? Uh, He's my husband's nephew. And so I talked to the husband. Well, the husband had come to Tucson. Back in 1932, fleeing the the wars of genocide that were occurring in El Salvador uh, at that time, La Gran Matanza. So, you see, those, those are all interrelated. And, and we live the history. You know, we are living it every moment. Yeah. It's like we carry it. It's our mental. We live it every single minute.
1: Yeah, I think it's this myth of the passive Mexican fascinates me. How that has, in some ways, become the the dominant narrative. I mean, when we think about the history of resistance, and you know, the mutual aid societies, the the defense societies that sprang up immediately, right? I mean, even if we just want to focus on 1848 as as this time period, but these these defense societies that spring up immediately to defend the rights um, of Mexicanos that are, you know, that chose to stay behind here in in the United States, as opposed to returning to Mexico after the, after the war. And then going on through, I think that, you know, also really, again, you know, I just want to say this, I was just fascinated by the history of Tucson, as really just sort of like this epicenter of resistance even like in terms of, of music, you know, and the way that, uh, you know, the, the city itself has developed right down through to MAS struggle um, that happened in the, you know, the earlier part of this century, or just, I guess like last decade. You know, thinking thinking about it in that way, I mean, one of the things that you all had said at the beginning was that the the clinic has really changed into into a fighting machine. And I know that you've, You've, you've touched on that, but I would be really interested. And I think that the people who are listening would also be really interested in, you know, exactly what that means. I mean, as they think about how to implement these uh, sorts of things in the areas that they're in, you know, because all across the country, you know, there are organizations that are fighting to help people stay here or to get them out of jail. And, and at some point, too, I think we need to talk about Operation Streamline because they think that people don't, they also don't understand that that's another aspect of the immigration struggle that's happening in Tucson that isn't exactly happening everywhere else.
2: Yeah, well, let me just add something and then I'll let Margot speak to the uh, uh, streamline. The first time that we did this, we had each of the individuals carry their own files in a long march that we did from Santa Monica Church all the way to immigration office by people, because part of it was, we are not afraid.
1: Right.
2: We are not afraid. We are proud. We are in our home. Yeah. And this is, and there was a march that was carried out, and uh, it, it, and, and people walked with their files, each file,
0: to go deliver and they marched in the rain that day the dia de la virgen de guadalupe and uh they carried their files and not only was it an immigration office that we went to was ice Mm. and they were proud and we were all proud you know And that's how we kicked off this clinic 2012 you know the clinic is is um way before I, you know, I didn't go to law school until after I was indicted and decided maybe I should figure this out. But I already had represented probably 3,000 people in detention in El Centro as a certified rep layperson. And um, I believe very strongly that uh, one shouldn't sell knowledge. And so, you know, you don't, don't become a lawyer so you can sell what you know you become a lawyer to serve and serve community. When we organized these clinics, we went to community and um, we did a lot of legal training. Uh, it's just demystifying, it's just demystifying the law. It's not nothing special to be able to, to lawyer. And so we created various working groups for naturalization for DACA for work permits all the different forms of relief that one submits um, in immigration court. We have volunteers from all over the place. We have volunteers that clean people's houses during the day. We have volunteers that are um, deans of whole colleges at the university. And they all come together and serve community and work, work in community. and we never accept money from anybody but we do say we'd love to have you volunteer and so we continue to organize that way and um, we continue to teach and we continue to demystify uh, something that people have made to believe is knowledge can only be held by certain folk that's just something that we blow up all the time and so our working groups produce excellent legal documents that I sign. I just essentially loan my license to the community. I sign them. Um, we do have a whole squad of volunteer lawyers and a lot of young public defender lawyers that volunteer in our cl- clinic. We're very much dedicated to the idea of dis- demystifying the law. We always run, We all, at least in this, in this era, kind of self-defense campaigns so early on, we produced um, just some tools for people to use. We have these big yellow signs that people post outside their businesses and their front doors, and they say, attention, all law enforcement, do not enter without a valid search warrant. They've been tested. In other words, ICE comes and pounds on the door, and they're ready to do a raid, and uh, somebody will open the door, a crack, and tell them, read the sign. Read the sign. Where's the search warrant? We created documents that people carry with them in their car, a signed notice of representation with a cover letter from me that says, dear law enforcement officer, the person, uh, the bearer of this document is my client. I've instructed them not to answer your questions, but to give you their name. Please call me if you have any questions. And then we sit down with law enforcement and we show that to the chief and the sheriff. And we say, you know we're not we're not really going to tolerate pretext stops and if people have done something that's fine we can we we understand that there are consequences but um we're not we're not going to just let people be be stopped because they're Mexicanos. right you, did,
1: did
0: you did you understand that message mr chief and mr sheriff you know and so we have these documents we have a little document that's sort of like a encounter satisfaction poll and we ask our clients to give it to those police officers or sheriffs and uh for them to say sort of rate how was this encounter and then put their name and their badge number and say there why they stopped our client and give it back to them and i i must say in the beginning i i thought that maybe that was a little bit dangerous that that would engender some kind of hostile reaction but again if you share with your adversary your strategy and you ask them to buy into it because after all, it's the law, you yeah. respect it and respect your clients just like you respect other people, um, that kind of disarms that kind of hostility. We, we continue to have problems with the sheriff. We, have, we rarely have any problems with the City of Tucson Police Department. We Sometimes we get those forms back and the police officers draw little smiley faces on them and that kind of thing. That's all good because everybody knows we're watching. That's all good. So we figure out ways and tools that folks can carry with them. And when I explain those, um, when we're able, we we meet in a public high school once a week and we meet in a a community-based church every other Saturday afternoon. Now, we haven't been able to do that for a while. But um, the school meeting, there are typically a couple of hundred people that come, in addition to probably 60 or 70 of our volunteers. And, and the, whole, the community knows, if your loved one got picked up during the week, uh, if you have questions, whatever, they know that's where they can come. And we're there, and they can count on us. It's been a little bit more challenging in this moment. But uh, we have a community office. And people, um, people can come. We do some distancing there. People can call and ask questions. Um, we continue to represent people in immigration proceedings that are going on. But our connection and our base is our community we always say when we explain, you know, put up the search warrant poster and that kind of thing. We know the whole can, whole community can't come to Pueblo high school. Right. So please take 10 of these and take these, these, uh, forms that say you have representation, give them to your neighbors, give them to your coworkers, take them to your church, talk to your family. So we encourage people to become organizers and we say to them, don't be shy, you know, they all can't come. So talk to everybody. And, and we often have people that come back and don't have a question, but come back for more supplies. So we're always looking for ways to maximize community contribution, because we know when one contributes, one becomes an owner. And, and we also want ideas. And we, we want, uh, you know, to grow uh, the energy of the movement. Yeah. And 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 the only way we can do that is is by um, creating opportunity. You know, often legal clinics information goes one way. Not not us. We wanna we wanna know what's going on in community and we want community involved in this intervention strategy. Because at the end of the day, our goal, we don't really care how, and we don't care if we win or lose, our only goal to keep families together keep people in Tucson and we know that there will be a, a brighter day tomorrow we know someday there will be immigration reform and and our challenge is to keep everybody uh together and safe until that moment happens yeah
1: yeah that's definitely a fighting spirit I know as I was listening to you talk I was just like yes uh basic community organizing it's very surprising to me sometimes how often um, people uh, cannot grasp the very simple concept of giving other people work to do you know a simple task pass down a flyer or right. bring a friend to a meeting you know I was in a in a meeting just the other day we were talking about work that's happening around restaurant workers and you know we were going over the, the wraps that were being written and you know they were really good they were good wraps they were tight you know but in, in hardly any of them uh, were the workers being asked to do something. I mean, it was all about what can we do for you? And mm-hmm. I mean, that's important, you know, because it is right. But that's I think di- debilitating and crippling to, to the average person. And I think it also sends a message that doesn't promote the idea of political unity or power. Right. Because it just right. further serves this sort of like us, them dichotomy. And so, yeah. Yeah, I'm I heard what you were saying loud and clear, sister. I, I yeah, yeah. yeah all those meetings, all those UFW meetings, they were like, yeah. Don't let don't let people walk out of your office without giving them something to do. Yeah. That's that was, it. yeah. That's it. So hey Gage, you've been really quiet, bro. Yeah, I
3: just wanted to uh Margo, you've been talking about the clinic and it's got me like you know, the things I haven't been thinking about because we've been so in it. Now we're getting this moment to reflect on like the purpose that it's it's serving in this I've had the, I've had the honor to work with the the clinic a little bit in the last month and it's really interesting right now here like how under covid like a lot of these community organizations and political organizations have really shifted to like a service-based model you know like out of necessity um and it's really good work that they're doing that. and I'm thinking about like uh providing free food or mutual aid initiatives But how its organizations like Keep Tucson Together, as well as, you know, by extension, the Pima County Justice for All campaign, who are the ones carrying this radical work forward of like actually still putting forth the like abolitionist agenda and literally getting people out of jail and literally like practicing decarceration and how like they're the ones on the front lines doing that work right now. Um, And I'm just thinking about that as you're talking about this clinic and how powerful that is and how much of a shift that that's been that hasn't really been talked about and you know i think that there's this dichotomy that exists between or like organizing and radical organizers and like legal services and the law and you know i think that in this moment that that narrative is kind of being flipped on its head where it's no longer this like like kneeling to reformism kind of narrative but it's more of of a that this narrative of social death has actually translated into like literal death under COVID-19 conditions in the detention centers and so now there's like really nothing more powerful than actually putting forth um, an organization like this in our agenda of like yo we're here to throw down and get people out of jail and like that is what this is all about and like this is how we decarcerate and this is how we work to you know, get humans out of cages. And um, I think that coming out of this, these types of organizations like KTT will be framed in a different light. And I'm, yeah, and so I'm just having this thought as you're talking, Margot, and I just haven't really thought about the clinic as like a a tactic that that trains people and arms people with the skills of organizing. I just think that's a really brilliant idea because it's a service model um, on the surface that actually does like give ownership to community members over like a a process of participating in democracy. And so that's really cool to hear you talk about.
1: It is very cool to hear it being talked about that way. I think that's one of the issues that sort of surrounds organizing as a whole, I would say particularly over the last 20 years or so has really evolved into sort of this idea of service. And I, I mean, it may have to do actually with, you know, the institutions, themselves uh creating um uh what do they call those like serv- days of service you know or whatever like where everybody goes out and paints a fence right. or you know that type of thing um you know and they're all like and then sometimes they say oh you know we did community organizing we went and picked up trash mm-hmm. i mean it's cool that you went and picked up trash but that is not organizing um right. that is that's picking, a- that picking up trash right and so um part of what I really hear in this discussion is very much a, uh, an attachment to the fundamentals of community mobilization. Right. I mean, the the more that you put flyers into people's hands and, you know, even, I mean, even if you just like, like the sisters say, you give them 10, give them 10 flyers, you Mm -hmm. know, and they say they're going to give these to, to 10 of their friends. I mean, that's, that's actually a, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, yeah. for people to go out and, and to do that. And so, like, when I hear that this clinic is a fighting machine, I am very intrigued by that uh, as an organizer, right? Because to me, that means something very specific. And it, yeah. and it means that that this, this clinic is a way of mobilizing people to oppose these unjust rules and laws and, and legislation. And yeah the whole idea around decarcer decarceralization i mean if you think about like what's happening in our country right now, I mean all of these things that we've been told can't be done you know are are being done, like, being we done. Can't, yeah we can't we can't let people out of prison, right, but they are letting people out of prison <laughs> you know it's just, somebody's lying quote well, it's like you
3: know what? there's decades where nothing happens and there's weeks where decades happen yeah That's happening yeah. <laughs> Yeah. people
1: are getting out, yeah. Margo, you were gonna say something. No, I just
0: find it, you're you're so right. You're right on about that because uh, the whole immigration practice is an administrative practice. And so yeah. the folks that we're trying to get out of detention are in administrative detention. And so when you think about it, it's like as if somebody went to apply, Lupi or I went to apply for retirement and the, went to social security and came back and said, well, you're one quarter short, short, you can't get social security. And then they put us in a social security detention facility. Yep. Because that's what this is, you know. But we've gone so far out into the universe about the demonization of people without papers that it's okay to put these folks in petri dishes. You know, we just have to do everything we can to deconstruct that. And now is a good time to do it. The facilities are horrific. What's going on in those facilities with regard to this, to the virus, is horrific. And you know, I worry because we get people out and then they go home to their families. There was the minister of health from Guatemala. I saw a report in the New York Times. I don't know last week. They tested a whole uh, plane load of deportees from ICE facilities. Seventy-five percent of those folks were came back positive. So we're, we're exporting death yeah. to third world countries that already don't have basic, fundamental um, health care for their folks. So we have to figure out ways to um, take what we see, the phenomena that we see, and translate that into action items and uh, organize around those items.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I think that this whole past couple of weeks or month or month and a half now, I I don't know, I'm I'm starting to honestly lose track of just how long I've been shut inside my house. I mean, but what what it really shows, I think, is the crisis. It shows the crisis of capitalism. It shows that we are actively destroying our world through our economic practices. And in the sense that there are people who are clamoring. I mean, they are, they've are they gotten their guns out. They want to go back to work right. so bad. And honestly, it's not just their reckless endangerment of other people's lives that surprised me, because I'm, I'm actually never surprised when a person takes another person's life not that seriously. I'm surprised at the reckless in, that they're so recklessly endangering their own lives. Now that that, to me, that's kind of a new one, because I'm like, huh. They could die. They know that. But they're willing to, you know, to do this thing to make sure that other people are rich. Because, I mean, when we go back to work, that's what we're really doing. I mean, we're making other people rich. And you think about how all this is going in this crisis that's being created. And you you can really see how each one of these issues are, are not siloed right? Incarceration is not a silo. You know, immigration is not a silo. Uh, drug use. I mean, they, uh, I know in Arizona that the, the main groups that were um, passing out uh, needles and making naloxone available that that they've shut down. All of these things are not siloed, but they are, you know, just in fact, these like components in a, a 360 degrees of this trap that we're in called capitalism. And, and so like, you know, thinking about it outside of that, of that circle, like how do we break free from that? And so, you know, it's just I, I think things like this are are very exciting. Yeah, I just want to say I agree with you that I don't think that knowledge should be sold. I, I agree with that. I, I realize that you know I participate in the selling of knowledge as a college professor, but I mean I think that that's absolutely true. That whole notion of demystifying the law, also true. I mean.
2: But but it's different with you, because I think with you, you are uh, subversive. <laughs> 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 That's true.
1: <laughs> we got to keep that among ourselves, right? and whoever, <laughs> listen, whoever listens to this. But it's... You're
0: gonna uh, that, hey, you're going to cut that piece, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, you know, I guess that just to kind of on that note, because, um, you know, we, we've been talking for, for a little while now. What I, I'd really like to ask and just kind of maybe finish up on, on this note is this whole idea. I mean, you have two Chicano Studies scholars, you know, on this, on this call, two people who teach Chicano Studies. Everybody here has an interest in that. But, I mean, how does the strengthening of ethnic studies Chicano studies, you know, how does learning our history and understanding politics in, you know, sort of conjunction with that history and the, and the socioeconomic conditions that we're in, I mean, how does, how does that strengthen our community? What, what does that really do, not just for us, but what does it do for everybody around us?
2: I think it's foundational because without that sense of connection to the past, we flounder, yeah, you know, we do not have the means by which to to uh, reassert our presence in today,
1: yeah,
2: right, and so so there is no way that we could and I don't mean to move forward, just to move in this moment, we must know who we are, yeah. And so our way of life, uh, you know, like if we understand, for example, just in this uh, moment, uh, the crisis of uh, of the pandemic, we go can g- go back to our family and family's history and the impact that uh, 1918 had on, on many of our families at that time. Yeah. And, and so I think that we without question every every single person must have that knowledge where it's coming through their family stories the stories of others or through the presence of subversives within the system of education yeah you know but it it's essential yeah i do not believe that we can change we cannot live within the belly of the beast without having an understanding of the beast Mm -hmm. and our presence within that
1: okay that's all we have for now i want to thank Margot, lupe and gage for coming on the reality dysfunction and talking about the very important work that they are doing down in tucson if you want to get involved in their effort or learn more about how you can bring this type of legislation to your own locale check out their website Pima County justice for all. Until next time, stay home, stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, this can't last forever.
0: Hey homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the Rasa.
1: This is for the Rasa. This is the Reality
2: Dysfunction.